This is the On Humans podcast with your host, Ilarim Mekel. You don't have to be an expert in anthropology or archaeology. Do you have heard the idea that how humans evolved was men hunted and women gathered? And this idea, which is associated with the very famous conference Man the Hunter in 1966 and a book by the same name, it makes a lot of sense at face value. I mean, the idea is that the human species flourished because we created this ingenious division of labor between the sexes. This division allowed women to focus on things like childcare, while also forage easily available food, while men were doing dangerous hunts and bringing in the meat. Now, this theory also did focus particularly on the male part of this. It was said that hunting really made humans who we are. Hunting required long-distance endurance, probably on two legs. It required complicated communication with whispers and shouts, in other words, language. And it required complicated teamwork. In other words, all of these kinds of things that make us such a particular ape. However, if only men were doing this, then there's a little bit of an issue, which is that women were passive recipients of these gifts in human evolution. An idea that not everyone is comfortable with doesn't mean that it's false, but definitely means that it should be investigated. And it was investigated indeed. This idea got a lot of pushback in the late 20th century. This pushback focused really on the ways in which foraging is often more important for calories than hunting in hunter-gatherer societies, and in ways in which foraging and childcare are super important for the evolution of human sociality. Books like Woman the Gatherer became influential, and I actually interviewed one of the legends of this strand of scholarship, Kristen Hawkes, in episode 6. Now this is all interesting, but it does still assume that there is a strong division of labor between the sexes in human evolution. Again, not everybody likes this idea. Again, that doesn't mean that the idea is wrong. But again, we should investigate. Are we simply projecting our stereotypes onto the distant past when we assume this difference? Or is the opposite happening, as some claim? So when modern films portray prehistoric women as hunters, are they simply projecting our 21st century ideals onto the past? A couple of weeks ago, there was a high-profile Scientific American article on this, written by Dr. Sarah Lacey and Dr. Kara Okabok. The authors argued with great force that women too evolved to hunt, and we should, quote, bury man the hunter for good. This was a super interesting article, but as you might guess, it caused a bit of a stir on social media, and some of the heated controversy was, of course, predictable, but I am worried that the subtleties of the science can remain kind of hidden under the layer of politics. So I invited one of the authors, Kara Okabok, on the show. Okabok is a biological anthropologist, but also a powerlifter herself. So um, you can see where the interest comes from. And we had indeed a wonderful and wide-ranging discussion. It was not only rewarding because I understood the argument better after having this, but also because I think that we might have even gotten past some of the most unhelpful, unnecessary controversies. Indeed, I do think that it's very important to remember that there are kind of many possible arguments here. One is the argument that women did hunt. Would have been at all weird to see prehistoric women hunting. And then there is the much stronger claim that this would have been roughly 50-50, so that there was no, even percentage-wise, no sexual division of labor. These are two different claims. We go into this detail in the second half of the conversation, if you are interested in it. But I just think that that's very important to keep in mind when talking about this with others, because people can often talk past each other one of them is talking about the absolutes, another one about the percentages, etc. I do want to say, as always, that if you do like this and other episodes on the show, do make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on whatever app you are using. If you want to become part of the inner circle of wonderful people who also support the show with real money, 
that would be amazing. Thank you so much for even considering it. If you do want to do it now, just head to patreon.com slash onhumans and you can pledge even a very small sum. Finally, I want to address one issue, which is that I know what it's like to listen to a fascinating podcast episode, want to share something about it with friends, but not be quite sure how to get the main point across. After all, they might not want to listen to the whole 90-minute episode, and you might have forgotten how all the fascinating anecdotes really fit together into an argument. Now, to help you in such situations, I have started writing a breakdown of each new conversation. You can read these mini-essays on my Substack, that's going to be onhumans.substack.com, or even get them directly to your inbox if you want to. All the links that I mentioned here are included in the show notes. In the show notes, you will also find a list of names, technical terms that we mentioned in the conversation. Anyway, let's get back to the show. I bring to you Kara Okobok. Dr. Kara Okobok, welcome to Unhumans. Thank you so much for having me on, Alar. It's great to be here. I think a, a nice little story that could, could lead us to the topic of our conversation is the fossil discovery in 2018 on the Peruvian uh, Andes. Would you like to start by just telling your, your version of what, uh, what the archaeologists found and what they first thought and what they discovered later? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'll be very clear that this is not my work, that I am not one of the archaeologists who, who found this site or excavate at this site. Uh, and I'm not an archaeologist at all. Uh, but these folks are working at a site that's about 11,000 years old in Peru. And they had several grave sites of multiple individuals. And with the bony remains, they also found several hunting implements. So the kinds of stone tools and hunting weapons you expect to find. And they had assumed that because these individuals were buried with hunting weaponry, that they must have been male because there's this kind of long held belief that males were hunters, females were gatherers and these very strict sexual division of labor. And uh, so then they actually did the analysis on the bones themselves, and they found that almost half were female and not male. And so you had these female skeletons, or what we believe to be female skeletons, uh, buried with hunting weaponry, which is really strong evidence that females were doing the hunting as well as males. Uh, because typically someone is not buried with tools or weaponry or any sort of grave good, unless it was something used in life or incredibly important to that individual. Uh, and so this kind of turned this idea on the head of like, it's only males doing the hunting. And no, it's not. Females are doing hunting as well. And he had a great uh, Scientific American article that came, came out just, just recently. You're starting from the same basic idea, right? That this is, it, it, it looks like when we, when we actually do the analysis where we don't just open the grave, see hunting weapons and say, aha, it must be men. When we actually mm -hmm. do proper analysis, it more often than not, it turns out that it probably females were doing hunting as well. And would it be right to say that there's kind of three strands of evidence for this? One from the archaeology of the past, one from anthropology of present, and third from physiology. Correct. Yeah. Well summarized. Somebody did their homework for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let, okay. Let, let's let's do this one by one. So, um, so archaeology. I could easily see someone say that the, the Peruvian findings are super interesting. They demonstrate the importance to actually do the genetic anal analysis. 
But in the large scheme, it's just an anecdote because it's just one site. So how common is it when we actually do know with pretty high confidence the, the biological sex of, of, of the remains? Uh, what kind of evidence do we have there about either this kind of evidence about hunting weapons or some secondary evidence which would suggest that there was no strong sexual division of labor or that there was strong sexual division of labor? So when you look at the archaeological evidence, not just taking this one example, but, but, but kind of across the spectrum, um, what do we find? Yeah, so we're going to look at a couple of different time points because there's no sharp dividing line between what is archaeology and, say, paleoanthropology going a little bit into the deeper past. Uh, so archaeological evidence, we have these wonderful findings like the Peruvian finding. And I, I think this will also end up leading to lots of other folks maybe reassessing their own uh, archaeological sites to take a look at who was buried with what and how sure are we about sex estimation. Uh, which is kind of the more preferred term because even things still can be wrong when looking at the shape of the bones and sometimes even the genetics. You with with ancient DNA, things get a little bit more tricky. And so we have this wonderful Peruvian example. We also have it's not hunting per se, uh, but we have Viking sites that clearly show females being buried as celebrated warriors. Uh, and so again, this idea that war, hunting, all these things that we today stereotypically assigned to males females were taking part in in even the recent past i mean the viking example is 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 very interesting and i i actually loved i, I remember reading about it and i i love the the details around it also but that is quite recent in the big scheme of things i mean if we're focusing on especially hunter gatherers in the place to scene so say you know well, more than twelve thousand exactly years ago. That would that's that's the, the Peruvian findings are right in the kind of they're right in the cusp. Yeah, they're the eleven thousand. Yeah, so right in the beginning of Holocene, but kind of you know close to that and that 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 mythical era. Yeah. Um, Vikings definitely not so super interesting, but uh, but less important. They are not hunter gatherers. However, they're a wonderful example of the ways in which our preconceived notions about what individuals are buried with lead to a bias and how we are recreating what those individuals were like in in their time when they were alive. Yeah, because with the Vikings, they also thought that they owned males, right? Exactly, exactly. And so this is, again, one of those things that folks will likely be going back over some of their archaeological sites to make sure that they got that analysis right um, and that they didn't just assign male because they were buried with hunting implements or war implements or things like that. Yeah, it is a quite a circular argument if you say that we have only found males to be hunting because every time we find a hunting weapon, we say this man. <laughs> exactly. Like, you're proving it yourself without actually doing the analysis. Uh, but if we go deeper in time, let's go further back to say, Neanderthals, who in some parts of the world were around 500,000 years ago and around as recently as 30,000 years ago. So they had a nice long lifespan on Earth. Uh, so Neanderthals are really interesting in that they were much more focused on big game hunting relative to anatomically modern humans, uh, which came later after Neanderthals. And of course, they all interbred. Uh, but they focused on big game hunting and they did it in a way that was up close and personal with those big animals, likely involving spear thrusting and spear throwing. Uh, and because of that style of hunting, they got injured a lot. <laughs> huh. I, I, I can the believe that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Neanderthal fossil record is 
filled with injuries. Okay. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, like we see this. It's not just like us thinking that they must have gotten injured. No, we see injuries and healed injuries in the okay. bones of Neanderthals. Okay. So we have strong evidence that they were injured all the time and it was likely related. And by the way, hmm. this is a bit tangential, but if they yeah. had a lot of healed injuries, that does also tell us a lot about their sociality, probably. Because, I mean, I had, I had a really lovely chat about this with Jeremy Da Silva, about how, especially once you're bipedal, mm -hmm. if you injure one of your legs, uh, if you don't have a strong, if you don't have friends, family, etc., taking care of you, you're not going to survive. And what's really fascinating is that we find, I think, even two million year old leg bones that have healed from fractures in the hominid mm -hmm. record. So there's been friends around for a long time. So yeah, I just wanted to put it there. Neanderthals, probably not completely solita solitary, um, brutish beast. Oh, no. Even looking at the genetics that we do have for Neanderthals, they lived in small groups that seem to have some sort of fission fusion going on, depending on the seasonality and resource availability. But to go back to your point that we actually have a humerus, which is an upper arm bone uh, from a Neanderthal, where they were amputated on the arm from the elbow down. They were amputated. It was an amputation. You also see how the bone itself atrophied over time, which means they survived that injury long enough for it to completely heal Whoa. and become atrophied. So, like, we have strong evidence of Neanderthal medicine that they must have had something to survive these injuries. But anyway, back to the point. So, the idea, again, is that Neanderthals focused on big game hunting and that they were doing it in this up-close manner in which they got lots of injuries, which is the fun part of this, is very similar to the injury pattern we see among modern-day rodeo clowns. Okay. People who distract... Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Isn't that the best thing? <laughs> this is a paper written that by my funny. old PhD advisor. Okay. And they looked at the, the injury patterns of Neanderthals and looked at injury patterns across like a bunch of professions, like football players and rodeo riders and rodeo clowns. And it turns out it was really similar to the rodeo clowns because their job is to get in the animal's way and protect the rider when the rider falls off the animal. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we have these injury patterns uh, that suggest a certain type of hunting behavior. And if you were expecting to see a big sexual division of labor between males and females, what would you expect the injury pattern then to be between males and females? Well, I guess even without going into the specific, different. Yeah, you would expect something different. You wouldn't expect to see the exact same injury patterns between male and female Neanderthals. And probably if men were doing the hunting, you would expect them to have more injuries on the rodeo style. Exactly. So here's the deal. There's no difference in injury patterns between female Neanderthals and male Neanderthals. They were all doing the same thing. They were all getting involved in the hunting. They were all getting involved in the tool making and the, the preparation of the meat and the skins afterwards. We see the exact same injury patterns, use patterns, like overuse patterns, um, same sort of dental wear because they use their teeth to help scrape skins. Okay. Uh, the hides of animals. They would they would hold one end in their mouth, hold the other one out, see if I can get here, hold the other end out in their hand and then scrape with this hand. And and that was enough wear and tear that we can detect. You see it on the teeth. Really? Yeah, we see that actually on the teeth. You get this weird frontal pattern of wear okay. on the front incisors. And 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 okay, oh, fascinating. And you see that in 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 male and female skeletons, same. Exactly. Same so we see okay. the hunting injury patterns, and then we see the quote unquote 
domestic wear patterns like preparing hides and things like that okay so that that all i mean that that's that's all very good evidence now the problem with that though is that if i remember correctly with homo sapiens almost ironically that does change and you actually start seeing more sexual differences in the injury patterns am i right you are absolutely correct so one of the better bits of evidence that we have and this is much more recent in time okay yeah can we put some can we put some i, I know that some listeners probably will find the dates or, or the, the years just to be confusing I mean, I think that anyone can listen to this conversation and forget about the dates, but anyone who wants to then cross-reference this with other things, it's just useful to have a vague idea of, of where we are. So so with the, the Neanderthals, we're talking about something like 50,000 years? So they've been around from 500,000 years ago to about 30,000 years ago. Okay. So okay. They, were on, they were on Earth far longer than Homo sapiens have been on Earth at this point. Uh, so yeah, in the more recent times, so we're talking like, you know, 20-ish thousand years ago sort of things. We start to see um, a bit of a difference in throwing, where we'll see thrower's elbow more often among males than females. However, we still get thrower's elbow among females. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, things like throwing spears, throwing um, slings, using the atlatl, which is a spear thrower. Those are all things where you might get thrower's elbow. Um, however, we don't have a good way of detecting, say, bow and arrow use in the bones the way we thrower's elbow um so we can't really say perhaps females were hunting they were throwing because we do get thrower's elbow among females more common among males how much more common how much more common by the way is like 10 times more common or like 10 percent more common i do not have a number off the top of my okay. head i'd have to okay. go back to the paper to take a look sorry <laughs> i couldn't tell you the I couldn't tell you the title of any of my publications at this point, Alari. Like, the things you just jump out of your brain. You're like, right, that's done. Move on to the next thing. Well, I, I um, actually, now I'm sorry that I interrupted because you were saying something super important. So um, so we do see that you know, do throwing, uh, we, we probably weren't doing it quite as much. But at, at the same time, we wouldn't know if they were doing compensating for this with more bow and arrow use. Correct. Or other styles of hunting. That is exactly correct. Uh, and the other thing to, to be aware of is that females at this time are still quite robust, meaning their bones demonstrate the fact that they were very muscular. They were still doing a lot of physical labor and a lot of intense work. That's super interesting. I, I, I'm not expecting you to know the answer to this, but um, a huge question around this kind of deep past archaeology is how good of a model are modern-day hunter-gatherers for uh, Pleistocene. Let's not attack the debate head-on here. <laughs> but do we know if the muscularity of modern-day hunter-gatherer females differs from what we predict from Pleistocene humans? Because that would be a very interesting kind of hard biology way. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I can say that overall... Like just typical trends kind of across populations is that we are less robust now than we were, you know, 10, 11, 12,000. Yeah. Males too. Who should we ask? Because I think it would be, this would be a super interesting thing to see. Uh, you have to find somebody who has access to any sort of skeletal remains from modern day hunter gatherers, which are probably really hard to get a hold of. Yes. For good reasons. Yeah, for exactly. For very good reasons. And so I honestly don't know the accessibility. I don't know museum 
collections or what people are willing to do. But but could you do some predictions based on just like you know you measure pe- muscles, muscle mass? Some- yeah, we'd have to take a look, and you could even do like you know CT scans to take a look at the bones and things like that. I'm getting very excited. It's going to be one of the most kind of uh, one of the ways to use some hard data to answer this very question of how similar lifestyles are modern day hunter gatherers living. Mm-hmm. Um, but but unfortunately. No answer today. Let's uh, put that. No answer. But I do want to make a statement about it. And it's not so much the debate is that like modern day hunter gatherers can give us some interesting information. But so many people, this is academics and the public alike, treat them as if they haven't been evolving for the past, you know, 200,000 years. And that's not true. They are not these living fossils frozen in time. Modern day hunter gatherers have been evolving just like the rest of us. And so to expect that there's going to be a one to one relationship between modern day hunter gatherers and hunter gatherers from, you know, 100,000 years ago, that is not a realistic comparison. Yeah, yeah. And I think we have to get back to that, actually, because anthropology, ethnography does play a role in your argument also. So then we have to look at it critically. But let's do that when we get there. Um, so, so far, the situation, if I get it right, is, first of all, we have this Peruvian example uh, just demonstrating that, no, we shouldn't expect that uh, that, that the females weren't doing hunting. Mm-hmm. The Neanderthal record really suggests that they were, it's even stronger. It almost suggests, no, that they were doing exactly the same things. By the way, vice versa, meaning that probably the males, Neanderthal communities, were doing all the, all the physical aspects, at least, of, of quote-unquote women's work, whether that was... Yeah whatever we, we would say that it is. Then we have the little hiccup in the story, which is that we do find sexual differences in injury patterns in quite recent, though, you said. You said only 20,000? It's more recent, yeah. It is much more recent than the Neanderthals, and it's when throwing-style weapons become more common. Yes, yes, but there we have the big caveat, which is, and if I might add something to what we already said, in the biological differences in upper body strength is i don't know how uncontroversial this is to say or how if this is at all controversial but i mean upper body strength is something where males tend to have a huge advantage yeah that's absolutely true and then it would make sense for sure that bow arrow would be the 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 tools of choice yeah or the atlatl which is the spear thrower that also helps to kind of level the playing field on strength as well interesting yeah okay well, so uh, is there anything you want to add to the archaeology? No, especially because that's not my expertise. I'm always <laughs> like, oh, when people want to ask me the archaeology questions, like that's why Sarah and I wrote them together, because <laughs> that's her area. <laughs> Let's then look at what is your area. The archaeology one is is fascinating. The anthropology stuff is super difficult. We already hinted at the difficulties ahead in that. Mm. The physiology one is something which I think everyone will learn something interesting from, even if they don't care about this this uh, <laughs> this issue. So I, I'd love to ask a couple of questions. But before we dig into it, let's just try to make a sense of why it really matters for this question. So why don't you give your um, your kind of take on it? When we think about these differences, like what I just mentioned, upper body strength being, you know, males having advantage in it, et cetera. When we think about these kind of physiological differences, how do they, what is it, how do they contribute to the debate about whether, um, whether there was sexual division of labor? So I think the really big issue here is that there's this assumed female physical inferiority. Because of this idea of the the lesser upper body strength and things like that, 
that females would have been physically incapable of taking part in things like big game hunting or even small game hunting on top of the, the, the concerns of menstruation, pregnancy, lactation, and child rearing. You can't get past the fact that a female has to carry a pregnancy for nine-ish months, depending, and you can't get past the fact that there's lactation. What we can tackle with this is that those do not stop an individual from taking part in regular activities because they kind of can't in our evolutionary past. You, you don't see any other mammals stopping. Like, they don't just not eat. They don't just not hunt. They don't just not run away from predators because they've got a baby or they're pregnant. They have to do that in order to survive. Um, and so using the physiological and anatomical evidence is to, to lay out the argument that, one, there isn't this innate physical inferiority that females suffer from. That's one. Two, females actually might have an advantage in certain respects. And three, pregnancy and lactation slash child rearing are not a handicap which is the way so many people view it. That is why these things are, are, are put together in the physiological aspect is kind of tying those three together uh, to tear down these ideas that have driven the narrative for so long. And so just to be clear, it's you, you, the, the argument here is not that there are no interesting biological differences, actually quite the opposite there are, but the way that they work out is definitely not as well uh, as clear cut as we have tended to think, and not always even in favor of of male uh, physical performance. Is that right? That's exactly it. It's it's the male physical superiority or supposed superiority that always gets the attention, and the other side of the coin is never really looked at. And I think, and what you're what is interesting is that it's not so much that you you're not so much claiming. It seems that things like testosterone don't help things like strength power especially upper body strength but that there is the whole the other side of the coin of how things like estrogen also help in certain kinds of physical activity so why don't you give the kind of estrogen pitch what what, what is what is this performance <laughs> benefit of estrogen like estrogen is the most ignored hormone and it upsets me to no end and it's actually like an evolutionary reason of why it upsets me that people don't pay attention to it. So um, some relatively recent work was trying to figure out what was the first steroid hormone. So steroid hormones are things like testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. Um, and that you can't actually date when a hormone appeared, but you can date based on genetics. You can date when a receptor for that hormone appeared, because that's what the cells produce, that they will produce the receptors to pick up that hormone signal. So you can actually try to come up with when this receptor first appeared. The estrogen receptor was the first one to appear. And the date for that is somewhere between 600 million and 1.2 billion years ago. Wait, 600 million would be like 10 times more than dinosaur extinction. So that's very old. Okay. And as potentially as old as 1.2 billion. I don't even know what happened then. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 can't, you can't comprehend that. Yeah. But it means the estrogen receptor predates sexual reproduction. So if it's at that older age, it predates sexual reproduction, which means estrogen has been a critical part of life forming on this planet and the way it has well before any other hormone was becoming biologically active. Before any other hormone that we know. So the testosterone receptor 
came about as a duplication of the estrogen receptor. So all other hormone, or I should say steroid hormone receptors, came from the original estrogen receptor. So estrogen was one, and then everything else branched off of it later. So the testosterone receptor is dated from 300 million to 600 million. Okay, so estrogen is the, is the mother of all hormones. It is. It totally is. And I don't even want to call it the mother of hormones. We can. We can gender it if we like, because all bodies need estrogen to survive. So I'm sure folks listening have heard of androgen insensitivity disorder. And these are individuals who produce testosterone, but their body doesn't make the receptors that can pick up on the testosterone signals. Uh, and though it's not common, these people are perfectly healthy. There will be reproductive health issues, and as in they likely will not be able to get pregnant or produce sperm or eggs or anything like that. But everything else is completely normal and healthy. What you don't see is estrogen insensitivity disorder. Okay, because they wouldn't be around. Is that why? Right? So there are three different kinds of estrogen. Uh, there's actually, and there are multiple forms of estrogen receptors. And there have been three cases of one form of estrogen receptor insensitivity. And all of these individuals, of which, again, three individuals suffer pretty ill health effects and you do not see estrogen insensitivity for any of the other receptors. And so the going, no one has actually proposed this. This is a thing that I've been toying with in my mind. Nobody's actually proposed this in, in the literature yet. But my thought is, is without some of these key estrogen receptors, like it would be incompatible with life to not have these estrogen receptors. So this is why it annoys me that people ignore estrogen. <laughs> It is the first one, and it has so many important implications of how our bodies function, no matter what your sex is. Okay, so so estrogen is super important, fascinating, and needs more focus. Relevance to our discussion, though, is that even if both males and female bodies produce estrogen, um, female bodies, am I right that they produce more or they have more receptors or both? Both. Yeah, they produce more and they have more receptors okay, as well. Okay, okay. And... Um, Estrogen not typically thought of as a sports steroid. <laughs> I know, <laughs> which is outrageous. Uh, although a few people have been caught using estrogen now as a performance-enhancing drug. Okay, and what kind of performance does it uh, improve? Because it does not improve. Uh, say you you wanna you wanna increase your bench press, you shouldn't probably. Correct. So, well, yes and no. Yes and no, because no one's ever actually studied this. So that's why I'm being a little wishy-washy with my answer. Because one of the things estrogen does, or at least so it seems, is it protects cells from damage that can occur during exercise. And so that is something with, say, bench press and, you know, any sort of power or strength sport, reducing the amount of cell damage might be a good thing for you. And estrogen can also delay fatigue, and so you can get more reps out. But I think this is super important. So this is important. So would it, So is the kind of quick pitch is, is it too simplified to say that where testosterone would increase your maximum capacity estrogen would increase your um your stamina your capacity to endure with a lower than a maximum capacity for longer that's kind of how it seems yeah okay and it also improves the after effects so like less damage improved recovery and that's why the longer the running distance the less there is sexual difference. 
to the extent that it might even flip after a while. This is so really interesting, and it's so such a shame. It was kind of there are some suggestions that it's right after the marathon distance, something like fifty six meters. Yeah, only one paper has modeled it, and they put it at sixty kilometers. But like that's one paper. It would it would be great to study this far more. But in the ultra endurance events, we are seeing women win with much greater regularity, especially given how low their participation is relative to men at this point still. But we're seeing females win kind of, you know, the Montane spine race and things like that. And so part of it is it reduces the fatigue. But what's leading to that reduced fatigue is estrogen increases the amount of fat muscles will burn to do activity. And fat gives you more calories per gram of it, uh, which means you get longer, slower calorie burn, which can help you go further. And it can delay fatigue. It also helps spare muscle mass if you run out of carbohydrate storage, which is stored in your uh, muscles and in your liver. So those sports gels would be more needed for males. Yeah, I wonder. That would also be a really awesome study, too. Um, (laughs) I mean... The thing is, is females are so understudied in exercise physiology that there are so many. Everything that we wrote in those papers could immediately be overturned eventually. But we're going on the data we currently have, even though it's a bit sparse. Yes, I see. And I do remember seeing a study where they had um, men and women participants doing uh, at a certain percentage of their maximum capacity. And although women would typically have lower maximum capacity... They would a they were better at doing say you have to lift weights at thirty percent of your maximum capacity they could lift many more repetitions than the men participants at least on average yeah so so that would all feed into the same story but what about things like Tour de France I mean I, if this is correct I would just I would expect there to be a massive female advantage in things like Tour de France where you just keep going there should be um, I mean over time there absolutely should be. Uh... I would love to take a look at some of the numbers to see where things are at. Uh, participation still is not as high as we see among males. And the Tour de France is also interesting in the way that it paces you by days as well, but that would still be considered an ultra event. But I, because I'm the one reason I'm confused about this is that no matter how many fancy words we are going to drop into this conversation, the the very rapid reaction that people end up having to questions about sexual differences in sports is they just look at the, you know, they just look at what's happening in actual sports. And nowadays when we don't have, we, we might have lower participation, we might have some other obstacles, but we don't have the kind of, in the seventies, it was almost unheard of. And it was thought that, that, you know, women shouldn't run a marathon. Mm-hmm. And we've come so far away from it. Um, my friends who run, they often have like, little bit more men or women in their mm-hmm. running clubs but it's not it, it, it's just no it's not it's not like there are no women runners anymore yeah or women cyclists and in most sports there is still a male advantage and so what is your take on it i have an answer i i do have an answer for it and i'm sure some people who are you know very strict about it are, are not going to like the answer but there's there are two things going on here One is the lack of representation, that we still don't have parity, and we still don't have not only participation numbers, but in resources, uh, as well as the socialization of, you know, how many young girls are pushed into sports uh, relative to boys. And, you know, why in the world do we have under six soccer, sorry, football, for, for those who are listening, under six football here in the United States, why are we separating boys from girls at age 
six. Like, this is the most absurd thing. Anyway, um, but as for the biological things, I think one of the biggest caveats, and this is, again, it's going to be unsatisfying, is that all of our training, nutrition, and recovery plans and regimens are based on data collected from males. And it is just scaled down treating females as small males. So we have no idea because there are innate biological differences on average. I mean, there's always going to be overlap between two groups if we're keeping two strict box groups, which I don't necessarily agree are, are with. There in, I, I've understood that in things like testosterone levels, there really isn't that even the very low testosterone males have more testosterone in their bloodstream. They do, but there's going to be high testosterone. It, it gets close on some of them, for sure it does. But even the correlation between testosterone and certain sports performances is not as strong as people like to think. There's a lot of individual variation. Um, but when we try to treat females like small males, when it comes to any sort of exercise physiology and athletic training, are we actually optimizing female performance? Because there are some biological differences, say, in the estrogen levels and the testosterone levels or, say, in recovery and whatnot, we likely have not optimized female performance at all because we haven't studied the ways in which we should. And so I am more than happy to change my mind when we actually reach parity on the research. Like, right, we have fine-tuned female athletic performance training, recovery, and nutrition now. Let's see what the data is. And if the data still separates out, great. Then the data still separates out and we can rethink how we're actually approaching this and and in in maximum strength you know a bench press we probably wouldn't you're probably predicting that no parity probably not but like marathon i mean we'll see what happens but until we are actually focused on optimizing female performance then no it's not a fair comparison to make and it's not it becomes one of those gotcha moments. You know how many times I've been sent average marathon times from people like in the past two weeks? Like, like that's what they immediately go to, but they don't really understand what's behind it. And the fact that ultra marathons kind of put females in a different class. Well, this is all super interesting and I love the humbleness. I, I We have to wait for the data. So let's hope that people like you get funding. And please prove me wrong. <laughs> like Everybody go and get your PhD in exercise physiology and study female performance. And then you can prove me wrong if that's your goal. Please do it. But I mean, it's also really hard. I mean, it's hard to get the funding to do studies right, if I'm being honest. Like if we take females, for example, one of the big reasons why studies on females and particularly looking at hormones are usually terrible is because they cost so much money to do right. Like if you want to see how athletic performance varies on the menstrual cycle, the way to do it is to actually measure hormones throughout the menstrual cycle. But that's crazy expensive to get that many days of hormone samples and analyze it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one final thing before we return to the more general question about um, the human past. Um, is how much uh, are these things about so take take the the testosterone that we know more about how much does it matter whether you have testosterone now as a, a as an athlete versus doing your puberty yeah we don't know uh and i mean that's a hugely important question as as we grapple with the inclusion and exclusion of transgender athletes particularly transgender women athletes those are the ones that are being attacked the most right now in, in the united states and we don't know so that is an argument that people who want to exclude transgender athletes that they use often like oh you went through puberty therefore you know you should not compete against 
females who were born and assigned female at birth. I'm not convinced yet uh, until I actually, and I'm not sure if we're ever going to get enough data, if I'm honest with you. So in the United States, so I'm sorry, I have to use United States data, but this is what I know. Only zero, yeah, only 0.6% of the population is thought to be transgender. How many of those are actually going to undergo transition? How many of them are actually athletes? And then how many within each sport? So when you think about doing the research, the numbers game is just against you in, in getting, you know, the, the right amount of data. Uh, I mean, there's one study like looking at, I think is it eight runners, eight runners, and they looked at pre-transition running times and post-transition running times. And the results are all over the map. Some people got worse. Some people got better after transitioning from male to female because they were mentally in a better place and felt better about themselves and others got worse. So the data currently is very sparse and it's all over the map. And again, this is another place where I'm happy to be proven wrong at some point that if we get the data and it says, no, absolutely. Transgender women have this completely unavoidable advantage over cisgendered women then, right, then we could talk about ways in which we can include them in sports that is fair and equitable. But excluding people based on what you think and not what the data says right now, that's just causing harm. And to also state that including transgender athletes is harming women in general, excuse my language, but that's just bullshit. You're saying it's harming women's sports, but the people claiming this are people who have never supported women's sports to begin with. They are not out there donating to women's sports. They're not out there going to WNBA games. They're not doing these things. They're just, it becomes a battle cry to upset other people and, and rile it up. But they haven't cared about women's sports until this moment. So I don't want to hear that argument. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, well, um, let's try to summarize the main take-home message. Am I, am, I, uh, am I getting it right that the the idea that men do the hunting, women do the gathering, and this goes forever back. It can come from a variety of sources. One is it can come from bad archaeology, you would say, or it can come just from the idea that, well, how could women possibly do it? You know, look, they, they can't even run a marathon, would have been the argument in the 60s. <laughs> and now we both know that they... they can and uh, and you're saying that actually when it comes to very long distance endurance sports which might be very relevant to to ancient hunting um it, it might be that it's not even that 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 you know the female body is capable of this might even be in some cases better at it than than, than the male body is that right yeah i mean it's there is absolutely no reason biologically speaking of why females couldn't or shouldn't have been doing the hunting and um yeah, we can go back archaeologically. We can look at ethnography of, of recent and historical populations. We do see female hunters. Um, <clears throat> and then we can look at it biologically as well. And I think another key point, two key points to remember is, one, early human groups and early Neanderthal groups, they lived in small groups of people. These were not big populations. There weren't enough people to be specializing in different tasks. Everyone kind of had to be as somebody said the other day, all hands on deck, because there just weren't enough of you to specialize. If you needed to go to gaming, you needed everyone. That is such an interesting point. I mean, I remember that was one of my favorite uh, 
moments from your, I think it was maybe from the Scientific American article that you wrote was this point about when you live in a relatively harsh environment in a small group, people just kind of analytically, it would make no sense to have a really strict prohibition in one group member helping with the activity of of the others. And we really don't see strong sexual division of labor until agriculture um, becomes predominant within within various human civilizations. And so, yeah, it's 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 a it's applying stereotypes of today into the past without really having the data for it. Well, okay, but then then let's look at the data that is most that where we do have a lot of data and where the data is the most because I mean, it's not—it's not true that the only reason we might think that men did hunting is patriarchal biases. Because there is a lot of hunt, uh, data from, like you mentioned, ethnography earlier, and we already had mentioned it much earlier, suggesting we're going to come back to it. Very tricky topic. Very difficult to say what exactly we can learn from modern-day hunter-gatherers. But so far, I think everything we've said has been hopefully convincing. <laughs> about the claim that uh, everybody is able to hunt and probably sometimes did. But then the question is about numbers because I think uh, I think most arc- uh, anthropologists who work around this theme would agree that sometimes females hunt. But they would say that, and, and you see this in papers all the time, that they say that overwhelmingly the majority of hunters Hunting is done by males, or men do most of the hunting, or whatever a variation on this theme. And when we look at the numbers, the ethnographic sample is kind of becomes a really important source of data. So why don't you start with your take on this? Because this is where I think most people would fall back on and say, no, 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 we actually have data on it being relatively rare that that uh, females slash women hunt. And it comes from studies on modern day hunter-gatherers where yes, they hunt sometimes, but not very often. So what's your your take on that? So my take on that is gonna refer to a different Kara, not me, uh, Dr. Kara Dr. Walsheffler. Um, she and a couple of her students came out with a paper this past summer where they actually took a deep dive into an ethnographic database. Uh, and I will be fully forthright and say that some people have come out against this paper because of the way that they broke down the data in that, in that database. Um, so they looked for ethnographies that explicitly mentioned hunting and explicitly mentioned who was hunting. Uh, and so then they ignored any cases where they couldn't get the data on explicitly who was hunting. So that, of course, shrunk the sample size down a fair amount. And when they looked at the data of, I can't remember how many it was, 60-some or 70-some different populations. I actually have the data in front of me. Uh, it was 65 groups out of which in, almost 80% of the groups had some documentation of women hunting. Exactly. 41 societies had data on whether hunting was intentional or opportunistic. It was almost always intentional in 87% of the time. So, yeah, I mean, the num- there's a lot of numbers in here. There's a lot of numbers, but basically, yes, in, in the overwhelming majority, in the overwhelming majority of the cases, and so, I mean, that's the thing. So this paper came out like, hey, here are these 65 populations or 50 populations or whatever, and 80% of them show women were hunting. Uh, that's a big, big deal. That's a large number. Granted, anyone can come back and say, well, look at the way that you brought down the data set. But if no one explicitly states who is doing the hunting, how can you analyze who is doing the hunting from those ethnographies? Somebody could assume that males were doing it. 
but until you actually know with the explicit documentation of it, we aren't sure. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if males ended up dominating it once you broaden things out. Uh, but again, this is one of those things that the ethnography is there. We do have lots and lots and lots of documentation of females hunting, and we see it with Chorburian Islanders. We see it with the Agta. Um, and so it's just one of these things of people get upset because I, I think they are trying to claim that we are replacing man the hunter with woman the hunter. That like, it's a complete liber- a complete replacement. It was either or, or a majority done by women. And that is, we never say that anywhere <laughs> in any of the articles we have written. And we also explicitly say that overall, it, it, this is also population dependent, hunting is not that important when it comes to how much food you're consuming. This of course changes for high latitude populations, yeah, like that, you know it. Exactly, exactly. But unless you're one of those populations, you are getting far more small mammals, plant matter, trapping, fishing. Fishing is hugely important. Um, and and for some reason, fishing is not considered hunting. I don't, I don't know why that's defined differently, but it is. Um, and so hunting in the grand scheme of things is not this critically, hugely important source of calories. Um, it is, it does provide important calories when it does, but it's not always successful. It's not consistent and it is not the main source of calories. Um, and so I think this is where people get kind of caught up in this gut reaction to the headlines of this work is that they think, you know, ah, you're just trying to make it seem like females are better than males and they're replacing males and all these things. Like, no, never do we say that anywhere ever. <laughs> yes, I can fully confirm that I have never heard <laughs> your colleagues say that. And so it's frustrating. And so we have all of these examples ethnographically, archaeologically, and the biological evidence as well, that there is no reason why females weren't doing similar tasks as males. And then the relative ratio is going to be dependent from group of people to group of people. Um, but however, to claim that hunting is the key driving force of human evolution and males were doing the hunting, therefore evolution was acting upon males and females were these passive beneficiaries to it. That's where we cry foul. Like that is not correct in so many ways. And, and the hope is that these papers highlight the reasons why. And it's, it's likely in some ways that females were a driving force in evolution because females are the bottleneck when it comes to pregnancy and offspring from one generation to the next. Yeah, I, I would like to say two things. One, one um, to support that and one to push back. Um, the one thing to support is that I think there was even one Australian um, hunter-gatherer group, I think, um, it's called the Martu, the Martu of Australia, where the amount of meat brought in by the uh, by the female hunters was bigger, on average, than the, the the meat brought in by the male hunters. And so this also becomes the other part of the argument is that people be like, well, yeah, females were hunting, but it's rare. Um, it's r- rare within this short time span. But when we're talking about 200,000 years of anatomically modern humans, and then 500,000 years for including Neanderthals. Who is to say that this short time span is representative of how things were in the past? Well, hold on a second. This is really important. What do you mean by this short time span? So when I'm talking about the ethnography, that's recent. That's within, you know, the Industrial Revolution. (laughs) That's a really short time span of very 
you know, honestly, relatively modern populations. Um, and so it's, you know, we can do the best we can with what we have with fossil evidence. And it's always hard to get behavior from fossil evidence. But at the moment, you know, people are, a common comment is saying like, well, prove females were hunters. I'm like, well, prove it was only males hunting. 200,000. Like, and you can't, you absolutely can't. And so they just assume that's the evidence, that the evidence points to males hunting. Well, I think that's that's a really fair point is that even people who might disagree with parts of this argument could agree with the pushback saying that we should change the starting point. Mm -hmm. The starting point should be no division of labor and then and prove it wrong with the data. Don't assume that it's males doing it. Yeah. Well, fair enough. I mean, I did say that I'm going to skip two points, one of the <laughs> to, uh, to, to support and one as a pushback. So the pushback was, and you already hinted at it, is that uh, the, the, this, this paper that, you, that we just discussed, uh, which came out this summer, uh, really interesting and, and definitely shaped my thinking. I mean, I, I, was a, I was a different thinker around this topic before and after. <laughs> so, so big thumbs up. However, there is one really frustrating lack in the paper, which is that it's a, it's a binary yes or no. It's a yes, women hunt, no, women don't hunt. Or yes, women hunt intentionally. Yes, they hunt, but only opportunistically. And no, they don't hunt. And then they do analyze it via do they hunt big game or small game. And by the way, I've seen, for example, on Reddit, people uh, say that, oh, yes, uh, women hunt, but only small things like frogs or whatever. No, it was like in 33% of these uh, groups. It was big game uh, also. So that, that's, that's all good. However, yeah, you, you don't see any data on, does this mean that there was, you know, one observation yeah. of woman hunting versus it was around 50? I, I can't tell you that. Yeah, I, because that is not the data that I worked with. I would say, get Carol Wallsteffler on the show to talk about it. I mean, we're also constrained in what the ethnographies themselves contain. If they actually have that level of granularity in the data or not, I that is... Not my data that I worked with, yeah. But there are papers who do suggest it. I mean, there is, I mean, Frank Marlowe is one of the kind of... Big names in that. Yeah, big names experts on hunter-gatherers. I don't know how much uh, you agree, disagree with um, with Marlowe's work, but I have seen a paper from him, I think it was 2009 paper, where he tries to do exactly that. So he, and, and, and I think he's just a really good example of why I think that they're kind of two different audiences that you are talking to because on the one hand you have the audience of saying that basically i'm a woman can't mm -hmm. and i think i, I think the, the, the case is well made <laughs> i know they can and they probably did but then you have people like frank marlowe who does very very careful analysis trying to make predictions on how much sexual division of labor there is i think I, what he does is he goes through the whole um i mean he at least suggests that he goes to the whole record of, of a study of hunter-gatherer ethnographies and tries to put numbers on the level of sexual division of labor and see how much these correlate with this or that. And um, I can link, I can send this paper to you. I don't expect that you have read it yesterday and <laughs> remember everything. So we don't need to get to the nitty-gritty details. I'll also post it in the show notes. But the basic take-home message is that there are... It is a, it is a, there is a curve going from vegetables and foods where it's not only women doing it, but it's majority mm. all the way to a big sea, mam uh, sea hunting, like sea mammal hunting, where it's almost exclusively 
in all the samples. It's only men doing it. And then in the middle, you have things like um, hunting fowl birds, where it's majority men, but not always. And so I'm wondering, do you think that there is, so, so, so if you're not presented with this kind of caricature, oh, you know, you know, women are just, they should just do the foraging, but you're presented with a very careful analysis by someone like Frank Marlowe suggesting that, no, that there is sexual division of labor, but it's a question of percentages, not of absolutes. How much do you think there would be disagreement between you? And I don't want to take Frank Marlowe specifically, but someone like him uh, who would make that kind of more granular claim. Do you think that there is disagreement? I, I mean, I honestly don't think it is an opposition to what we're saying, because, again, we're not saying that only females hunted or that even females did the majority of the hunting. Uh, what we are saying is that evolutionarily in our deep past, there is no evidence of that deep sexual division of labor. And so when we reconstruct Neanderthals, early anatomically modern humans, even Homo erectus, these reconstructions of only males doing the hunting and females only doing the domestic duties, that's incorrect. Um, so I don't dispute Marlowe. Marlowe did good work. Um, like he did good work on the data. I, I might dispute some interpretations here and there, but I, I'm absolutely fine with there being a sexual division of labor. I am not fine with it being an elimination version of sexual division of labor, that there is none of this crossover. Yeah, that's a really, yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. And I think that personally, if I think, what have I really learned about this? All the numbers aside, it's that, well, humans are pretty flexible. Right. That is why we are so successful. <laughs> yes. So it's probably not the case that wherever you go, you would always get the same kind of rigid difference. No, no. I mean, our environments aren't, same, aren't the same wherever you go. And so wherever you are locally living and dealing with, you're going to deal with that situation and be flexible so you can survive and have kids onto the next generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, another thing, I mean, I, I, pre I really appreciate that was a thing measured um, uh, take on this. I wonder, have you by any chance, I so wish I would have sent this to you beforehand, actually, because um, I, I just remembered this morning that I've done an episode with Vivek Benkatraman, who works in very, very similar yes. things. It's Vivek is not happy with that, that Carol Walsheffler article. <laughs> He's been very vocal about that one, yeah. Oh, really? Yes, yes, yes. I did not know that, uh, actually. Uh, well, yeah. I need to see what he says. He doesn't like how much the sample size has been shrunk down, but I, I see why the Wall Scheffler Lab did that, because they were looking for explicit mentions of it so they could actually draw yes. data from it. Okay. Well, uh, I think that the, the interesting thing here is uh, we have been talking about doing another episode with him about, uh, about another topic, but also, also this topic because he has written a, a piece for the conversation about the Peruvian finding. And it was a very, very interesting article. And it took a very interestingly different take, at least superficially, than you. Because what he argued was that the Peruvian finding, that there were um, female skeletons buried with weapons, hunting weapons, is, shouldn't be surprising at all. It shouldn't be. <laughs> I agree. Like, it shouldn't be. <laughs> but it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. But, but here's where the difference comes. Here's where the difference comes. Is that he says that it absolutely shouldn't be surprising because of, what I think, what we just said earlier, which is that, with you, which is that, that, that humans are flexible. That, of course, in some environments, 
PMAS would end up doing the hunting. But if I read his uh, argument right, is to say that there is a lot of sexual division of labor in most hunter-gatherers, but that doesn't matter so much because he has studied, he has done a lot of studies with the Batek people in uh, Malaysia, and they are one of the most notoriously gender egalitarian hunter-gatherers. But the men do most of the hunting. Mm -hmm. And so I think his point, and what about one really nice anecdote that really stuck with me is that he also says that, however, there are some uh, girls who during adolescence get really into the blow, blow dart hunting, and then they might stick to it after adolescence too. So there's no strict, oh, you shouldn't be hunting, which there is unfortunately in some hunters. But, 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 but for example, there, there's no strict, you know, this kind of uh, division. But most importantly, the fact that they have a lot of egalitarianism, gender equality, isn't there because there will be this 50-50 division of labor about everything. No, they have sexual division of labor in percentages, not in absolutes, but they're still very egalitarian. And that should be the kind of more important take-home message is not to wrestle about whether there was sexual division of labor, but rather to see how despite of it, or you can have gender egalitarianism and how even with it, you can have gender inequality. That's kind of how I read his argument. I I have nothing against that argument at all. Like, because I don't think that runs counter to what we were saying in our articles in any way, shape or form. No, it's it's not, it's, it's, I would just say it's a different focus. Yeah. And I'm fine with that focus. Our, Our focus is just being being much more objective coming in to reconstructions of the past than we have been so, so that we are not assuming that it is only males doing this and only females doing that. Therefore, that da 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 you, you keep building those reconstructions and these deep sexual divisions of labor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he also did cite some evidence where you might actually disagree a little bit more. This was very much in the details, so it's not, not so central to the argument, but in that piece, and as I said, I, I really only remember this morning. Oh my God, I just wrote, written this. I should really check it out um, again. And I did go through it again. And um, I, I can quote from it, actually. Um, he does say that, quote, this was supported. Uh, so in a recent review of women's hunting that surveyed traditional societies around the world, the authors found that pregnant or lactating women do not often hunt. And those with dependents only hunt when ch- child care is available or rich hunting grounds are close to the camp. That isn't, it's not that you have in your articles with Sarah Lacey, you would conflict, them, but you, I, I do get the impression that uh, what you're saying is that, you know, that we, should, we put too much emphasis on child care being a restriction to hunting. I think it sounds like he's putting more emphasis on the fact that when you are taking care of children, you hunt less. And when you do hunt, you hunt in a more restricted area. Um, what's your, you know, kind of gut reaction to that my take on that again is i have no issue with it actually when it comes down to it we do have evidence from the agta that they are hunting while pregnant and fairly quickly after giving birth and they will take babies with them hunting and the agta they are in the philippines Mm -hmm. yeah uh and so yeah, I don't have an issue with it. If a, an individual who is pregnant or lactating is not feeling up to hunting, then yeah, they're going to reduce it if, if it was a difficult pregnancy or a difficult, you know, child rearing. But again, humans are, we are a communal species. It's, it, we communally raise our young, especially more so in the past than we do now. Um, now things, families are, you know, 
my family lives in Michigan and I live here. <laughs> like you, you aren't near your aunts, uncles, cousins, and, and kids to help raise them. Yeah. Which does put a lot of pressure on the romantic bond. I'm sure it does. But like one of the big things is we are one of the very few mammals who live such a long life, especially females, post-reproductively. Like menopause is a very, it's not an only a human thing, but we see it particularly in female humans. Yeah, I had a whole episode with Kristen Hawkes about it. It was a fascinating one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like grandmothers probably helped their daughters to be able to go and hunt because they took care of kids. If they wanted to go hunt, maybe they just wanted to go gather, whatever. Like, I don't have anything against what Vivek was saying, um, actually, at all, because I don't think it runs counter to what we're saying. Yeah, I, I, I do read it more as a complimentary point. And I, and, and so I did, I'm, I'm sorry if I presented it too much as an oppositional, but definitely, yeah, just different form. No, because people, you aren't the one to do it. Yeah. Like other people have like, oh, what do you think about what Vivek says? I'm like, it's not actually that far from what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want to quote because this is such a beautiful ending. So uh, I just want to quote again from, uh, from his article. The final line was uh, that as the case with the Batek people shows among a liberated society of equals, status and power has little to do with who brings in the meat. Love it. <laughs> yeah, that's just such. I, I I love that ending. Um, but okay, I I think we've done a pretty good job at dissecting the argument and hopefully avoiding unnecessary debates and <laughs> understanding the nuances. Um, so one more um kind of very you know granular question is. I've heard that, I've seen written that there is a correlation between sexual division of labor and habitat. So that in uh, more resource abundant habitats, there seems tends to be more sexual division of labor and more harsh climate, less. I think that the very Arctic climates are an outlier in this mm -hmm. one. Um, but uh, is that something that uh, with Sarah Lacey, did you look at any of those kind we have not addressed that no we haven't we haven't however i'm working on a book and the book manuscript is due in january so i'm having to put aside all other projects at this point uh but sarah and i are, are toying with an idea of another paper that looks a bit more at sexual division of labor when we see strong evidence for it and what that might mean yeah what's your what's the book going to be uh do you want to tell what it's going to be the preliminary another you know, the working title or <laughs> It's right, it's, it's right along the lines of this. So it is called, That's What She Said, The Story of Hugh Woman Evolution. And it's really highlighting the ways in which I, we, I think that the female of the, the human species and hominin lineage were likely big driving forces in our evolutionary path. Um, you know, talking to Kristen Hawks, you've heard that. I also am, am becoming more and more convinced that this, the innate human endurance that we seem to have because we are one of the best endurance mammals on this planet might actually come from physiology related to pregnancy. Very interesting. One interesting. Um, this is probably an unfair question. And if you think it is, uh, I'll, I'll leave it out from the final product. Uh, you're, you take, you get a time machine, you're dropped to 30,000 years ago in the place to see in 
Uh, what's your prediction on the numbers? How many percentage of the meat is brought in by uh, male? Where Where are you dropping me? Where are you dropping me geographically? Okay, very good. Well, give me a couple. Or give me a no. That makes it more interesting. It does. Am I in a very cold place? Okay, okay. Give me a cold place? place. Give me a hot. Give me a savanna and give me a, a a warm forest. So, in a cold place, I would imagine because we are again low plant like biomass relatively to, to you know a, a a cold place or a warm place i would say less sexual division of labor because the, you you're going to be smaller mammals and birds to hunt and fishing things like that but you're also likely going to go after some of the bigger things um and that might be an all hands on deck situation so that's the neanderthal situation right because they were in cold europe exactly yeah 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 although Neanderthals were kind of everywhere. We like to focus on the European ones, but um, they're also our best fossil record. Like the European Neanderthal fossil record is much bigger than other locations. Um, so in temperate, um, you might start to see more sexual division of labor. Maybe males are starting to focus on the big game hunting and females would do fishing and gathering and things like that. So this would be this would be temperate like uh... Indiana. <laughs> Yeah, Indiana. Indiana. Okay, okay. Although no one was here thirty thousand years ago, but still. <laughs> yes, yes, but but okay. What about the what about the classic savanna? I would imagine the same thing, unless they are going for really big game hunting, in which you need all people to. I, I think it depends on the size of what you're focusing on. That if you're going for the big fauna, you're going to need more people to deal with that. Not only of the actual hunting and killing, but then bringing everything back uh, to wherever your central location is. And so I think it's not only going to be time and geographic dependent but i think also you know what your prey is that's going to depend on you know who's included in that and who is needed in that to make it happen so in the mammoth hunt uh, it would be more everybody all hands on deck that's what i would imagine yeah okay and in the savannah i don't know zebras or whatever is being hunted there it would probably actually be more that's still pretty big game that that I mean that's still pretty big game i would not let me say this i would not be surprised to see females on a zebra hunt <laughs> yes 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 um but 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 you but but your hunch was that statistically would be less common than with the mammoth hunt yeah that's what i would imagine because there are many more very juicy plants as an alternative source of your diverse exactly yeah well, now comes the unfair part of the question. Give me some percentages just to make it fun. Oh my gosh, you're literally making me just make up numbers. Like, okay. <laughs> I would just be making it up and I don't feel comfortable just making up numbers. <laughs> okay. As I said, this is the unfair part. No, you don't need to do it, Don. Someone's going to quote me on that and I'm going to be like, no, I literally yes, made okay. that up. <laughs> Let's keep it down. But that was that was still, like, it was a useful, that was a very, very useful, um, not, not numbers based answer. Thank you. Um, uh, then a, a less unfair question. You get a time machine. You can go anywhere in the past. Where do you go? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's the academic answer. And then there's like the personal answer of just like what I think would be cool. Like, I would love to go back in time to Neanderthals. Like send me back to Neanderthal glacial Europe and seeing the interactions with anatomically modern humans. I want to see that go down. Um, I think that'd be really cool. How much do you think that the... Homo sapiens takes over Europe by violent means. I don't think by violence. I'm sure there was some violence here and there, just because people are jerks. <laughs> <laughs> people can be jerks. People can be jerks. Thank you. Uh, people can be jerks. There's going to be some violence. Sorry, I'm an optimist, so I have to. I'm a pessimist, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so I'm sure there is violence, but we also have, like, we all carry Neanderthal DNA in us today. Some populations more than others. So, like. 
clearly we interbred. We didn't look different enough to be like, oh, no. Oh, unfortunately, of course, that can happen with violent means also. It absolutely can happen with violent means. I do think that the amount of trade uh, and the amount of tools and things like that that flows from population to the other, maybe, you know, you loot a community and you get their tools, but it does feel more like there was trade yeah. and, and, and cultural learning. No, I completely, um, at least, but I, I agree with that entirely. Um, so yeah. But was that the academic or the personal? The academic one, because scientifically I'd be interested to see it personally. So as a child growing up, I was obsessed with ancient Egypt and the pharaohs. Okay. I would just love to go and see what life was like then. That's the personal fun answer. <laughs> Okay, that's fun. But you know, that leads us actually into one of the final things I really wanted to ask, which is everyone who's interested in patriarchy. I mean, it's a big term and there's a lot of aspects, but let's just, let's just focus on the combination of a sexual division of labor, which is combined with big power differences. Mm-hmm. So if we focus on that aspect of historic patriarchy, mm-hmm. which is just unfortunately prevalent in throughout written history. Um, some people have a very easy time explaining it because they say it's just biology. Of course, you know, look at the baboons. That's just how we've been doing it all the time. Take a look at bonobos and you can be like, no, that's not how it's done. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, so wh- when do you think that it starts? Because this is one of the most, in- there's, there's been a lot of, there's been actually two books on it this year, like high profile books, mm. Patriarchs by Angela Saini and uh, Why Men. Unfortunately, I can't remember the their, their author's name now, uh, by two anthropologists. Um, there, I, I interviewed Richard Rangham earlier, mm. who is going to publish something big on it soon. Very different take uh, than, than, for example, Saini. But basically, I think almost all of these answers can be put on a kind of scale of from the, well, baboons do it, we do it, all the way to, oh, it was created by, I don't know, medieval Europeans and then spread by colonialism. Um, Where on that spectrum do you think? Yeah, this is is a tough one. I think, I feel like agriculture is where we start getting that deeper sexual division of labor. And I wouldn't be surprised to see more patriarchal behaviors coming about at that same time to reinforce that deep sexual division of labor, uh, as well as the protection of resources and land and competition for land use and all of those things. Um, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me, but that's also not a solid scientific answer. That is a personal hunch. I'm being very honest about what I'm saying. What's your favorite logic about why agriculture? You mentioned uh, the resource protection of resources. So would that suggest that because organized violence becomes more important and therefore upper body strength with wielding swords or is that because you have a storage? Yeah, there's the storage and there's you are now, you are no longer following the resources from location to location based on seasonality. You are... You are planting yourself and being sedentary, quote unquote, as in you're not picking up your settlement and moving all the time. And so you're protecting this land and protecting the resources to cultivate said land that the stakes become much higher at that point of keeping a good plot rather than what you were doing before, which is following herds or following the seasons as whatever plant produces whatever food you you are planning to eat. And um, I mean... One of the arguments against that, for example, in Angela Saini's book, she, she kind of, she, she takes, uh, uh, she takes a more recent 
beginning as the most likely citing evidence from places from early, like, uh, am I pronouncing it or the, uh, anyway, in the Turkish, very old Turkish, um, settlement, early agricultural mm. community where you based on archeology, span at least based on some archeologists, you basically find zero evidence of, of sexual, uh, differences in status, at least based on the, the great findings. You do find it in ancient Egypt. But that's the thing is like, it's so, it's so independent from location to location to location. But there's also like 6,000 years between these. And I think that the, I think if I remember quite, there's a long time I, I, if I read the book like half a year ago or something, uh, but if I remember right, the idea was kind of like that there is a, and I think also in the dawn of everything, mm-hmm. and David Graeber and David Wenger make a big point about this, like we often talk about the agriculture revolution know, whatever, eight, 9,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, depending on where you look. Um, and then we use evidence from things like ancient Egypt, which is more like, you know, at very, very max, you find evidence like 5,000 years ago, anything interesting happening there. So there's like many thousands, many millennia in mm-hmm. the middle, which is just complete haze and nobody even kind of tries to yeah. <laughs> guess what was happening in there. And that actually that might be the most critical period or the emergence mm. of patriarchy, according to some, like Angela Saini, yeah. but I don't rem- I, Yeah, like, I can't refute it in any way as, like, those periods of time are just not mine. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm just interested in your very academically uh, educated hunch. Yeah, my educated hunch is it is likely related to agriculture and having to guard what you have in a single location. You're not just up and moving to a new location with other resources. It is now you're here, you're stationary. And I think a really interesting question that someday somebody will responsibly answer is trying to connect you know what does the act when is the actual realization that sex leads to pregnancy leads to offspring like when does that come about interesting because you know once males realize that hey this act leads to offspring and that offspring could be mine that could change things too in, in the way you know patriarchal structures come about well, there is a, there are those lowland tribes in the amazon Amazon basin who believe in shared paternity, which is, uh, we talked about this with Helen Fisher, and uh, I think she agreed to some extent, at least I, I, my take on it was that this might be one of the most useful misunderstandings in biology. Yeah, in my mind means a lot more sexual freedom than what we see in other societies on the planet today. And so that they have a good way of managing, you know, parental care that doesn't you know, getting into interpersonal conflict. Uh, so yeah, shared parental rights sound like an awesome idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I could retrain my mind to like it, but I think that if you're born into it, it might be a very nice idea. Yeah. Though they do have spare bonds. They do have marriages and things like that. It's just that it's okay to, you know, to get some support to the pregnancy process from the outside. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but yeah, now we're, we are... um I've kept you for for a while already. Um, how many, uh, do we have time for two more questions? Yeah. Okay. Well, first question. Um, we it's been a little bit difficult. I've tried to to stay uh, clear about when we talk about male female versus men woman. Um, the men woman discussion I think is more appropriate in anthropology, where people typically judge the social socially perceived uh, gender. Um, sex more appropriate in archaeology difficult things uh pretty hot button issues nowadays mm-hmm. without going too deep into it 
I have heard you say that sex, like gender, is not a binary. Mm -hmm. I think there are many people who don't either don't understand what that would mean or don't see the evidence for the claim and would associate it with someone talking from, you know, the, the social sciences or humanities who doesn't know about it. But you're a biological anthropologist. Yeah. So this is a wonderful opportunity to ask, uh, what, is the, what is the meaning and what is the evidence for the claim that mm-hmm. biological sex is not a binary? So I actually have another Scientific American piece out that came out yesterday on this exact thing um, that I, I co-wrote with Dr. Charles Roseman. And that I, I think we are approaching the issues of sex and gender a bit carelessly. And I, I think that the way in which we operationalize sex, and when I say the definition of sex here, I'll get to that in a moment, but the ways in which we operationalize sex need to depend on the questions we are asking. So there are going to be, so when I talk about sex as a strict binary, there are people like you produce sperm, you produce eggs, you are one, you are the other. But there are people who don't produce either. There are people who have a testicle and an ovary. Like these are still people who are part of the conversation. <laughs> like you, you can't eliminate them because they don't fit within this particular box. How big of a percent? It's not a big percentage. Of course, it's not a big percentage, but that still doesn't mean we can dehumanize them. Sure, but I'm just getting just to get uh, a kind of ballpark. Uh, it is a very small percentage. We, we could we could pull it up, but so like these are the things. There are people who want to do it by gametes, and you know it's only this way or it's only this way, and then there are people who want to do it by chromosomes. But hey. There's recombination. So chunks of a Y chromosome can end up on an X chromosome or vice versa, or you can have XXY or, you know, like fragile X syndrome. There are any number of things that allow for all this really cool variation. And then there are other things you talk about that we associate with a strict binary biological sex of, say, hormone levels. This is the most common one. And this is where I think a strict binary really fails us is these characteristics that we associate with a specific quote-unquote binary box sex when really these are continuous variables so things like hormone levels are continuous variables um and that's where it becomes really problematic and so this was you know mentioning it with like exercise physiology and studying females and looking at male female differences and trying to relate it to testosterone how about instead of just male female differences for now we just look at testosterone and look at testosterone levels and correlate that to whatever performance variable you're trying to correlate it with using a strict binary doesn't actually tell you anything about testosterone in that case and how it affects performance but does it tell about some something systemic i mean i could see there being a thing of for example testosterone affecting females on average different than males on average where it's super useful to have that distinction because it's not just about testosterone it's about those and if that's the question you are asking then sure you can use a distinct difference yeah okay and so we are limited in some ways by available data so we we talk about this in the piece where if you're talking about evolutionary reproductive success then yeah we're going to talk about only the subset of the population which is the larger subset of course that produces gametes and successfully produces offspring that's going to be a stricter binary but there are other ways to look about sex and the implications of what somebody's physiology and biology are that these are these this is, these are continuous variables. These are not categorical variables, and that's where we need to be really careful about it. We see variation in chromosomes. We see variations in gamete production or non-production, 
And it all depends on the question you are asking and the ways in which you operationalize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I could I could hear someone being uncomfortable with um, not the fact that there are, for example, intersex people. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's 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 very very important. Like you said, for not dehumanizing even a small fraction of society just because they happen to because we want a simple category. But I do. Um, you sometimes hear things like uh, race and sex are social constructs that are more fluid than we have come to think. And that's where I would understand some people getting a little bit uncomfortable because with race, you can really make a strong case that it is a completely meaningless biological category and that that's a very important thing. Whereas sex is almost, I mean, it, it is one of the most important biological categories. Yeah, I'm not arguing that it's not. Yeah, and so I, I think like that, what, what do you think of that? Like, would you share that person's concern about this um, skeptical voice, his concern about using language, which uh, which makes it sound like it's more like race, because I think race is so easy to understand that you know they're just it's not a biologically interesting thing. We've just started categorizing people based on some very superficial phenotypes versus sex, which is more aligned. Do you think that there's still like a very big difference that we should focus, like we should we should be salient? Uh I absolutely think there is a difference. Like, I, I do not believe sex is culturally constructed the ways in which race is culturally constructed, because there are clear biological differences. But those clear biological differences, when I say clear, I'm actually glossing over the variation there as well. And so this is where the issue is, is that people want these very strict definitions but so much of biology, whether human or otherwise, rarely fits in a strict definition without exceptions that give all sorts of interesting things. And no matter the ways in which we are defining sex, uh, which there are multiple ways to do so, that should not dictate the ways in which we are treating people and the way we are legislating bodies. And this is where that issue really does, you know, it's where the rubber meets the road is that these people who are looking for very, very strict definitions, there are a lot of ulterior motives going on about, say, trans exclusion or the ways in which we have transgender affirming care, things like that, uh, which the U.S. is facing so much of the legislation against those individuals that they are trying to find as strict of a definition as possible in order to push through this sorts of legislation. And the biology does not tell us how to treat people. Uh, and unfortunately, that's what's being allowed to happen right now. Okay. Thank you for uh, allowing that <laughs> not so uncontroversial topic. Uh, you saw what I wrote, Ilari. I have no issues with controversy. It is apparently where I'm living right now. So. <laughs> okay. Um, one final question. All of the all of the research that we've been talking about, all the other research that you've done, how has it shaped your outlook on humanity? Oh, I would honestly not say that it's research that it changes my outlook on humanity, but it's my teaching and it's interacting with my students and seeing this next generation come up and seeing the ways in which they view the world and are actively trying to make it better. They give me hope. They give me so much more hope than anything I do otherwise within my professional career. What about them? 
they seem to be coming into things with far less stereotypical baggage, if you will, of like stereotypes about humans or gender roles or class roles and race roles. They seem to be coming in with a much more open mind without this more stringent view on who does what and why or what they should be doing. And they're very inquisitive, like they're willing to question things. Um, And that gives me hope. That gives me real hope. Dr. Kara Okobo, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. So that was it today. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed the Unhumans podcast but feel like you could learn even more from it, like you sometimes forget things and would like to get back to it, either just to check some highlights or, or to dig deeper in understanding how different ideas in these episodes link to one another, you have now more ways to do so. You can read the Unhumans newsletter now on Substack, and this will give you a lot of nice extra content in a written format. As a Patreon member, you can also get a lot of useful extras from episode prefaces to Zoom calls with me. But that's it for now. Until next time, take care.